Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Alok Patani. Alok, thank you very much for joining me. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Alok Patani. Alok, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So, look, you're not a typical sports better bookmaker or someone that I've spoken to in the past, however, equally as as fascinating. Why don't you start with what you're currently doing and and some of the things you've done recently? Yeah, um, I'm a data scientist here at Google um, at the headquarters in Mountain View. Prior to that, I worked at ESPN for um, eight years full time. And most of that time was spent working in sports analytics. So um, I'm a big sports fan. Um, background is statistics degree. Um, wanted to like always good at math, always like sports. Didn't really know how to combine them till college, which is right around the time when the sports analytics movement started to like gain a little bit of footing with Moneyball, of course, in the U.S. and um, Basketball on Paper, which was a more technical book um, from Dean Oliver. But that really kind of spurred the basketball movement. And um, I was like, oh, this sounds like a really fun thing to be involved in. So I tried to angle myself into there, got fortunate with ESPN, starting a sports analytics team shortly after I joined, had the right background, and uh, things kind of took off from there. So the reason I'm so interested in talking to you, I've heard you speak publicly about what you've done at ESPN and done in the past, and obviously now at Google, that's certainly not a, a step down. Uh, I guess from from my perspective... I guess eight or 10 years ago when you were starting out in sports analytics, what was it like back then? What type of data sets were you playing around with? What type of information did you have at your fingertips? Um, Yeah, I think a lot sort of less granular information than we have now. Um, So in the first like sort of stab, I think I took at sports analytics. I was still in in college um, at Boston University and I had done like this independent study working on NBA data. And at the time, there was some stuff publicly available, and I was able to get my hands on it, but it was like season-level data. And if I like really worked, maybe I would have had game-level data. Um, so the questions we were asking were, were, were like, you know, the highest level, like how do teams win and like what correlates with winning within a season. Um, and it wasn't even that predictive at the time that I was asking the question. Um, and then when we started at ESPN, we actually had a lot of data, but... Um, people hadn't looked at it in sort of this analytical framework. It was more like we have play-by-play data and we surface it right to the website, right? So, or, you know, to people just to to know like what's going on in the game. Um, but, you know, eventually you can start thinking about the play-by-play data gives you such a rich source of, you know, how, um, how players contribute to teams, teams' chances of winning. And those are the types of questions we eventually started asking. But at the time, um, it was set up just to kind of like 
we want the play-by-play -play data to come in and then get to the fans. So a lot of people listening are probably thinking, are you a professional sports better? How does sports betting fit into this given it's a betting podcast? Just to clear the air out you know, from the very beginning, you're not actively or at all involved in sports betting. That's fair to say, right? That's correct. Yeah, and I think it's still interesting from many aspects given you've worked in the, the heart of things at ESPN and building a sports analytics sort of team and department and working out what's predictive, why, being a data scientist at ESPN or even Google now. So that's the sort of angle I want to touch on. So take us back to the starting days uh, at ESPN. What was your role back then and, and how did it evolve? Um, yeah, so the idea was to, um, we were within a content group at ESPN known as the Stats and Information Group, which continues to put out really good, like interesting information about all sorts of sports going on. ESPN covers you know, all the sports across the world. So um, when we started the analytics team, it was a group of three or four of us. And we, um, you know, it wasn't exactly like we knew we would come up with a couple projects and then eventually things would kind of go one way, you know, over time, depending on how well we did and what kind of stuck with the rest of the company. So the first project we started on was called uh, QBR, the total quarterback rating. And that was to rate um, NFL quarterbacks on you know their performance there's ways that this has been done for years and years and we thought well, again with that play-by-play -play data and uh, we have we had player tracking data um sorry i shouldn't say player tracking data it was video track data of additional information so again this is like 2010 this is before you had the sensors and stuff but we had um, people at espn watching every play of every nfl game and charting additional information that isn't in the play-by-play um, and we were thinking that if we put that all together, we could build a better quarterback rating system, took into account the context of every play, divided credit, uh, and, you know, did some other things at the end to kind of put it in this meaningful scale. And uh, that was our first project we worked on for, I would say, like six or eight months. We had a big launch, and then we continued to work on that, but that was the one that got us off the ground um, from there, we did a bunch of different things. College basketball was something I was involved in. College football was something I was very involved in for a few years. Um, the team grew, so the team itself then got more involved in NFL predictions, NBA predictions. Um, and towards the end of my time, and I think has continued since I left, they've been more involved in college basketball predictions, um, soccer, all sorts of things. So um, we didn't start with this sort of like predictive, like we're, gonna, we're just going to build predictive models, but eventually it became um, kind of apparent that it would be really useful for lots of cases. And uh, I think, you know, myself and then the team over time grew in our capabilities to do more predictive modeling. I want to get to the college football uh, power index and a few other things you've done. Before we get there, tell me the first time, if you can remember, when the betting line was discussed or the spread was discussed or something from the, the betting markets or information from the betting markets was thought about to be used within you know, evaluating performance or evaluating anything, whether it's a performance or even predictions? Yeah, good question. So when I start, I, I kind of came into sports, I'm, I'm a fan. I watched a lot of uh, different sports and in particular basketball and, and uh, American football, but I didn't gamble much. I think I understood what the line was, like I knew what minus four meant, but um, I, I didn't get it. And I didn't quite understand why anyone who was not betting would use the betting line. So again, this is years ago, I was pretty naive. And over time through working at ESPN, and there are people who like were very much into like understanding the lines. And in some cases, 
uh, obviously more now, but even at the time, there were some sort of niche products where the people would talk about the gambling side of, of football games or, or what have you. So um, it was an education process for me, but what I realized was the line ends up being like a really good gold standard to evaluate your predictions by. So if you're going to make game predictions in uh, any sport, but, you know, we were starting, let's say, with college football, um, you know, you wanted to to have good game predictions. Well, what does that mean? Uh, we want to get them right, of course, but like, you know, now we need to compare to other systems. And uh, if you study over the course of many years, the system that does the best, if you count it as a system, is the closing line um, or, you know, some sort of line um, that's set by Vegas. And that's because, you know, the market is fairly efficient. They have the most information, you know, all the things that your most of your listeners probably are aware of. But at the time, this was not <laughs> this was not something that was obvious to me. Um, so at the, we didn't sort of like incorporate the betting line into predictions, but we started realizing like if we are going to have a predictive model, we need to like compare ourselves to the betting line and see how well we're doing. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess going back to the CFB uh, power index, when you're building that, did you utilize or include anything from the betting markets or any information related? Yeah, we didn't explicitly um, at the time I was involved at the beginning and sort of like the iter- the first few iterations of it, we didn't explicitly use um, any of the gambling information or preseason odds or anything like that. Um, I think college football has actually come a, a good bit in the last four or five years. But at the time, there were a few rating systems, but we were like trying, we, we thought that we had the best play-by-play data um, or at least the most clean play-by-play data. So we could do a lot of work with that. And um, we actually, you know, this is probably similar to other people who built models, but what we were doing is we would use like some combination of data we could gather from the preseason and then ratings from previous season, college football, um, very short season, right? So most teams will play like 12 or 13 games and and maybe a little more if they get into the bowls and playoffs. But um, so you, you don't have a ton of data on in a given season. So the preseason rating actually matters from like a good, a good bit of your predictions. So if we could go past seasons and build um, a good rating for each team going into the season, we knew that that would be really important um, in terms of doing our predictions from the beginning onward. So it was actually a little bit more of like a traditional, like gather a bunch of data, including stuff that would be available before a season, do some modeling um, and then sort of iteratively work on the model. And uh, then, like, once we had that, we could, like, do game predictions and then, you know, back test versus Vegas lines and things like that. So this might be a dumb question, but what, as you set out to, to build a power index, let's say, or any other predictive model, I guess, what's the intention or, or what, what's the one or two things you've got in mind from the outset? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. So, like, what's the goal of your predictive model? So if I'm, you know, uh, others on your podcast are professional gamblers and, and um, you know, if let's say they're focused on specific games, then the goal of their model is to make sure that that game prediction is right. Um, and that was one part of the goal at ESPN. But the remember, the, the, the idea is to serve like content, right? So content means TV. It means did, like ESPN.com and, and Twitter and all these other places where ESPN puts its content. So. Um, initially we, we were just going to like rate teams. So it'd be like, here's team one and here's team, whatever, 128, if it's college football, 32, and you just can like have some rating. Um, and we found out like that is 
useful, but only like part of the way there. What does it mean if one team is one and one team is 10 and they're playing each other and 10 is at home or something? So there you have to make a game prediction model. So, you know, you do that. But then like the question is, well, who's going to win the Super Bowl or who's going to win this series in the NBA playoffs? So now you're turning from your game predictions into series season long predictions. Um, so eventually, like those became the goal. Uh, if we were building a soccer model for like the World Cup, for example, we would want to like have something at the beginning of the World Cup and then it would move throughout the World Cup and we can track the team's chances as teams advance um, through through the group stage and then the knockout stage. So eventually, I think those sort of season projections became very um, interesting and maybe among the most interesting outputs. So we had to have a predictive model that was like good at rate, rating the teams to a game prediction or match prediction model that was good at predicting the matches to then building up to those season projections, which could then be used all over the place. And in fact, like were and still are for, for um, ESPN, they can you know make really good use of that information, both leading up to a season and within a season. Yeah, interesting. So I guess one component that's obviously everyone wants to, in the sports betting world, build a predictive model and then bet based on that. Have you thought about the difference between the, the performance analysis and how that might be useful, or is it useful when you're talking about predicting a, a team's performance? Yeah, I think the best example um, from I can talk to on this is the American football perspective. So um, we had this quarterback rating system that we started with, and again, that was kind of in a non-predictive sense. We kind of just wanted a like, way to score a quarterback's performance. He, you know, They played a game or the season, and sort of who rated as the best quarterback based on everything they did to contribute to winning. Um, and of course that has like some element of similar elements as prediction, but it's not the same thing. You're not necessarily stripping out all the um, sort of randomness to just get at the part that's going to correlate most going forward. You may not have the aging curves and all these things built in. So when we went to build the first version of the NFL um, football power index and the projections there, we knew that, um, you know, taking into account the quarterback was going to be really significant and like the stakeholders we had at ESPN were like we can't have a system where if one of the top quarterbacks goes down the rating does not the projection does not update so um what what the team built built at that time was a to take QBR and build a little bit more of a predictive version of that um so that would take into account the age and strip out a little bit of the randomness and that was going to at least give some version of if this quarterback starts for the team versus that quarterback, uh, their chances of win will adjust in, in, you know, up or down by this much. And you can imagine like, you know, really good quarterback like Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady, the difference between him and his backup was much bigger than sort of these teams where the the starter is not very good. And maybe the backup is going to come in anyway, because um, he gets benched throughout the season. So we wanted to take that into account. So this was how, um, in the NFL cases, we ended up having like a, you'd have a rating for the team with its starting quarterback and then with its backup. And then once we got some sort of news on injuries or suspensions or what have you, we can adjust the team's rating accordingly. And it would be adjusted sort of dynamically looking forward. So if this quarterback, um, the big case we had initially was Tom Brady was suspended for four four games to start a season. We can um, say like, OK, adjust the Patriots projections such that he's going to be out for four games, but then he'll be back for the fifth game. And then, you know, that obviously affects those game predictions, but also their chances to uh, win the division and make it through the playoffs. So we had um, some way to dynamically update that whole thing. So one part of that, and it's probably not even your job, but it's, it, I'm sure you've dealt with it. How do you, 
How do you deal with someone that says, well, that's completely ridiculous? And maybe one example is when you see the uh, power index or the percentage chance of winning and it's 99.9% yep. and then that team yep. goes to lose. How do you how do you balance you knowing knowing what the data says and, and maybe it truly is a 99.9% chance of winning and then that doesn't happen? How do you talk to people in those instances when you know, well, the data says this, but the human element and the counterintuitive aspect is there? <laughs> really good question. We had lots of difficulties um, in the past on on this sort of thing, and um, so within game win probability is a tricky place for this, and that was something that our team was working on, and I think they continue to. Um, I think there's like so there's two answers on the within game. If you have a 99.9 percent chance of winning and the team lost, um. I think like the Super Bowl with the Patriots, not the one you referenced against the Seahawks, but the one with the Falcons where they were down twenty to three is a good example of this where I think like there's two there's two things that were at play. One is like I maybe the chance wasn't ninety nine point nine, right? Like maybe the model is wrong and it should be if you take into account all the factors, maybe it was something like ninety eight or ninety seven. I don't you know, I don't know. So one is like, yeah, maybe the model should handle that better. Um, the other factor is like, it's still pretty close, right. And sort of like the linear scale where, uh, no matter how good, like good you think the Patriots are and how likely you thought the comeback was, I don't think you thought it was like very likely to happen such that like the percentage adjustment you would make is pretty small. So I think you can acknowledge that the model could be better while also still being like, it's not that far off. It's still really unlikely for these comebacks to happen. And then the reason why it like feels that way to fans or maybe others is because the other, like if that game was 28 to three and the Falcons go on to win, like, I don't know, 35 to 17 or something, we aren't talking about the fact that they had a 99.9% chance to win because they ended up winning. So you have all this, all these times in uninteresting games where that leads to a, a win for that team. And those don't get discussed. The comebacks are the most exciting ones. So from the fan, from the media perspective, that's what gets discussed. So often you'll see like, uh, commentator uh, say like, oh, it had a 95% chance to win, and then they'll show the highlight and that team loses, and they'll say, see, that didn't mean anything. Well, yeah, it's because we didn't show the, all, like, the other 19 highlights where the team with the 95% chance to win went on to win because it's not as exciting. So you have this sort of bias in terms of what is gets presented from the win probability. Um, the one way we combat that is if you kind of look back. Um, we did this a lot with the game predictions where, yeah, a team had a 75% chance to win. They lost the game. Um, but if you look at all the games where we said a team had a 75% chance to win, roughly three out of four times they won the game, and that's how you calibrate a model. Some people bought that. Uh, it's harder with others who aren't necessarily thinking probabilistically, but over time you can kind of um, you know, use some data and some key examples of those to say this is you know, how, how we track our system. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's probably going to exist for a lot longer than than we will. I think one of the... <laughs> The Betfair Exchange isn't a house that sets the odds. It's betting at its purest. One punter's opinion against another's. Play the game within the game at betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. One of the one of the interesting aspects I find talking to a lot of people in this space is they don't want to use data, they don't want to use models either because they don't agree with it or understand it or or have the time or the expertise to do it. If you were if you were on the side of someone who says data scientists are irrelevant, models are stupid, they're not predictive, you see the ninety nine point nine percent thing in the Super Bowl, they don't make any sense. 
what arguments mm-hmm. would you use or what can you use to try and say that there's there's limits on the extent the data can be correct or there's limits to the extent models can work? Is there any re- reasonable arguments left or are we in an age now where if you don't do it and you use intuition and a lot of the cognitive biases we know about now, you're going to fall behind? Um, yeah, I think I don't think there's like only intuition and gut feeling will work in sort of a sustainable way. So I can, you can probably think of like um, cases. So like maybe games or in-game win probability isn't the best example here. But when you have a case where like, uh, so some team executives in in American sports or maybe otherwise, uh, a lot of them are not necessarily data-driven at this point, right? So they go into a draft and they maybe have some data or some information from others on their on their staff who provide data, but they make picks, you know, a lot of cases off of some sort of um, a lot of information, which you get from scouting and that sort of stuff. And I think those picks, like if you look backwards, they probably do um, not much worse than picks that were strictly based on numbers because the old school piece still plays a big role there. Um, So I think they can have some argument that, you know, my picks are good and you also have a smaller sample. You're only making a couple picks, draft picks a year or transactions a year. Um, I still think data can help you there, but my point is I think those people can have some sort of argument that this will work. Um, I think when you have these like large scale, like I'm going to bet on lots of games over the course of a year, uh, I'm going to try to track win probabilities in every game or every match. Um, I don't think an, a pure gut feel approach will work. Um, I do think that it's important to listen to those people at the time. So if like we go back to our Super Bowl example, um, it's down, Patriots are down 20 to three. The model says 99.9%. And some like intelligent football person says, no, there's no way that's right. They have Tom Brady. You know, I think at least it would be higher than that, um, higher than a 0.1% chance for the Patriots. Um, they're, and they're maybe, they may be relevant, right? So like they're, what they're saying could actually be that, you know, you need to take into account this. And then you as sort of the analyst, data scientist, statistician person can say, oh, what I need to do is adjust my model to take into account the fact that you know, whatever the case may be, whatever, maybe, you know, you, if you know your model, you'll know what may not be represented well. And then maybe in the off season or the next season, you can adjust it. And again, it's not going to make it 50-50 at that point, but it might move the um, probabilities a little bit. And you're actually gaining intuition from that person. Yeah, that's another question I had around that was, how is that going to evolve? Because, you know, in those instances, or as we move forward, people are going to use a lot more data-driven models or data-driven employees that will help push or, or trend things in those ways. And one example, I heard a Malcolm Gladwell podcast recently about pulling the goalie, I think it was 11 and a half minutes out if you're down by one or two goals in a hockey game. Yeah. No one is going to do that for many reasons. But if even if that mm-hmm. is optimal, and I don't know, but if it is, mm-hmm. uh, people might pull the goalie you know, one minute out and then maybe one and a half minutes and two minutes. And as it trends towards what the data scientist tell the the head coaches that is optimal how do you factor in getting i guess the the model right the intuition and and then obviously the public backlash that goes into these type of things can you reasonably factor in those things when as a data scientist do you think about them and and can you include them um yeah so i think you that's a very multi-layered question i think you, you there's a couple things there that i think um you can factor in um so from like the sort of backlash and coaching and i think there is where you have this like sort of the incentives of a team sort of 
how do they align from player to coach to general manager to owner, right? So if everyone is kind of on the same page, right, then, um, and they believe the data, let's say, then like a coach can make a really like seemingly crazy decision and maybe it won't work, but in, in the long term, it knows it increases our chances of winning, maybe small, like 5% or something, but over many decisions that adds up. And then you have, you know, the GM who has discussed that with the coach and the owner who's sort of sort of on board with that. And the coach isn't fearing that, like, based on the media backlash, he might get fired or something afterwards. Um, I think you're you have the ability to take more risks like that. Um, there's a couple examples of this in, in American sports. Um, I think the, the football one is the Eagles. They were very aggressive on fourth down. Um, sort of the football analytics community for the last 15, maybe more years has been suggesting that NFL teams should be much more aggressive about going forward on fourth down versus punting the ball away. The Eagles actually kind of put this into play a lot last year, helped them win, had a couple of key plays in the Super Bowl that actually were fourth downs. So I think, um, you know, they're, they were at least like aligned enough to try it and it worked. And now um, whether this is now the right thing or not, I think other teams will look at that and say, oh, we can do this too. And maybe they should have been doing it all along, but now you have these sort of like really big high profile example use cases of where it did work. Um, and then that can play a role. Um, to your other question about like data science and like the decision-making without it, um, I think you're going to have more and more data. That's for sure. Um, so I think the, the, the trick there is even with the new techniques and stuff, asking the right questions is still like the most important thing, I think. So with all the data, you have, you know, your data scientist has some sports experience, but hopefully you're working in concert with the coach or general manager, others on the staff who have lots of experience, and they might indicate to you what are the right questions to ask. And then you might go off and do a lot of work to help answer those questions. Um, but if they tell you which questions to ask, and then you kind of go about it the right way, um, you're gaining information from the sort of old school people, but also helping your analysis. Yeah, absolutely. And and do you think that's caught up to a, a maybe a 50-50 recognition of that? Uh, obviously, if you went back to spoke to Bear Bryan about what he was using from data and analytics, he probably might say nothing. Do you think it's still yep. I don't I don't think niche is the right word. I think maybe 5 or 10 years ago you could still argue it was niche, but even now, especially with the Eagles, um especially with yep. some of the other approaches even in baseball, obviously. Do you think we're 50-50 in terms of intuition and, and data and modeling or we're still got a fair way to go to, to catch up? Um, I think it's a fair way to go. Um, maybe in baseball, it's closer to the split you suggest. Um, I know in the NBA, um, there's been huge progress in the last like 10 years such as, since I've been sort of aware of these things by going to the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. It used to be a couple teams had like one person doing analytics and it was like, well, everyone has one or two people and now it's some teams have a huge um, staff of this. I, I'm still not sure like how much that gets into decision making. I know of like certain cases and, um, you know, I'm always kind of the pro pro data guy. I'm going to look for the cases where that does work out. Houston Rockets, uh, I just talked about the Eagles in that sense, but I, you know, I imagine there's lots of cases where the, there may be a large presence, but how much it gets incorporated into decision-making, I don't know, and it may not be um, as much as it appears yet. So I think it differs a lot by sport. I think we're um, a good ways from where like the data is sort of relied upon as heavily as that. So how far do you think we have in terms of data scientists and analytics, certainly in sports, and then obviously 
for the listeners applying that to betting and, and using that same or those same techniques to, to find predictive models. Are we at the tip of the sword or have we got a long, long way to go? Or once we get access, you know, widespread public access to player tracking data, that'll revolutionize things or maybe one day there'll be biometric data that's available on, you know, athletes and that'll revolutionize things. Yeah. What What sort of transition do you see in the future because i'm always curious to understand from those who are on the front line if we're at the tip of the sword now or looking back in five or ten years we're going to laugh at talking about play-by-play data and maybe some tracking yeah i think it'll be a little bit of both we might laugh at it somewhat but these things take a while to kind of put into play so just because like you have a lot of data um doesn't mean again that you're answering all the right questions so if i have a bunch of player tracking data or maybe biometric data, um, it's going to take a while even within a team or from a um, gambling perspective, I think, to understand, like, what am I going to do with that data to improve what I'm currently doing? So if you're a professional sports gambler, like, you know, you have some models, uh, ones who are based on data, you have some models and you, like, you're already probably predicting games or season outcomes uh, with some degree of accuracy. And then, of course, there's some limit to that accuracy because of randomness in sports and the best team doesn't always win and all these sorts of things. So how, like, you know, how close you can get to that with the new data, um, you know, I think is, is something you can measure, but I don't think it's going to like, you know, sports aren't going to be completely deterministic. I don't think. So you're not going to have like, I'm going to start predicting games at a 95% rate, for example. Um, So I think, yeah, I think it'll come down a lot to the new data and how, you like ask the right questions to incorporate it. Um, I think from the betting standpoint, from what I can tell, the markets are pretty efficient. Maybe 10 years ago, in certain cases, it wasn't the case for bigger sports. So, um, you know, it's not clear to me that like you can get the new data and then start beating the market in a sustainable way. But, you know, professional gamblers might disagree with me. No, I, certainly in NFL, I would definitely agree with you. There's There may be small edges to be had, but... We'll see how that evolves. One question I, I often talk to people about is how to build a model. And as a non-Google data scientist or without eight years at ESPN behind me or anyone else, how would you suggest someone like that go about building a maybe a spreadsheet model or anything like that? What are some of the, the pillars that are important to consider? Yeah, I think um, the trial and error method is is however you go about it, I think is the best um way so like this is going to be cliche but like getting your hands dirty and actually doing it and then seeing what happens and then doing it again and seeing what happens is going to be um i think the best teacher so i what i think is really valuable um in the last couple years since i left espn and now i'm at google what i find crazy is the data science community sort of online excuse me on twitter all these places has really like gotten big and you can find really good like tutorials on how to use Python, how to use R, how to use SQL, all these like programming languages that people use for data science, sports or otherwise. And you can find then applications to whatever your use case may be. So how do I use um, R to build like a basketball uh, model using some of the spatial tracking data, like the little bit that's been released publicly and build like a simple like little animation that shows all the players in the court. So there's a you know, some web source that shows you that. And it might take a while to like go through it and understand it. And maybe I didn't understand, like, I don't even understand the first part of it. So then I have to go and like learn about some package or something in R. But 
um, it's there for you to kind of like learn. So I think you have a ton of resources online. Um, you have communities like Kaggle, which um, is like a community of machine learning data scientists, and they work on all these prediction problems for money in some cases. And, uh, you know, I think they, they provide you the data too. So like now you don't have to necessarily go gather the data. Um, they provide you the data. They have some ways you can go in and like play around and do some basic modeling. So I think um, Excel spreadsheet model, um, maybe a good starting point. I think getting into programming is nowadays becoming more and more relevant and important. And I think this is like, if you're really interested in sports and want to do sports gambling, I think that's a really good way to like force yourself to learn programming. If you don't, you know, if you only know a little bit or don't know it at all. Okay. And and besides programming for those that are interested in sports betting and read through stats and, and go through a lot of information and want to try and build their own system or model or whatever it might be, or just want to work in sports and, and, or, yeah. you know, that type of thing, any material or content or books um, you mentioned some tutorials online. Is there anything else in that space that's relevant or has helped you throughout your time at ESPN or otherwise? Um, yeah, so many. So I think the starting point for me um, for basketball was certainly Basketball on Paper by Dean Oliver. Dean Oliver, I was fortunate enough to work with at ESPN for a few years. Um, he's sort of a pioneer of basketball analytics, at least from like the NBA perspective. And um, that's a really good like foundational book. It's about 15-ish years old now, which is, um, but it still has a lot of like concepts of possessions and tracking and how you like evaluate a player in the context of a team and that sort of thing. Um, for football, I spent a lot of time um, reading the Advanced Football Analytics blog by Brian Burke, who also I had the fortune of working with at ESPN. Um, but I had actually been in contact with him many years prior to that, learning um, about his like take on um, NFL and just expected points and all these sorts of concepts that are really fundamental to football analytics. Um, and there's like, those are both places where there's tons of material and like you can go from start to finish and really like build up your knowledge base. Um, and then, yeah, I think there's all sorts of online resources that I, you know, I couldn't, couldn't enumerate. Those are the two that got helped me get started. Um, there may be better ones for, for nowadays, like getting started where you don't have to like, you have like some, you have much more data and you can just start sort of ahead. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Uh, look, thank you very much for your time. It was a little different area for me, but I thoroughly enjoyed chatting and I appreciate you, uh, coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks. This is a good time. Appreciate you having me.